0: i 'm going to pick it up in the same spot where you left off last week, which would be the end of acts eleven we 're going to do acts twelve today and it 's a story, and it 's a really cool story. Uh, I think that Luke, our author, is going to he uses this short story to sort of sum up and cap the big chunk of chapters one through twelve, and after this, the overall narrative of Acts will turn sharply. And the mission is going to go geographically out much more than it has so far. So we've seen it move into Gentile uh, territory. Now it's going to go further out after this. But this sums up uh, the end of the first big movement. Uh, It's interesting. It's It's a hilarious story at a certain point. It's a little bit gory at other points. It's exciting. I think it's powerful. Um. Before we get into it, I want to set it up with a question related to your life, our life as Christians. I want to ask the question um, in this way. As you walk with Jesus, perhaps you haven't been walking with Jesus at all. And so you can just sort of hear it from my perspective and maybe others as you chat. But if you've been walking with Jesus for some time, have you ever run into a moment uh, where it feels like he's nowhere near? It feels like he's not around you feel a little bit distant or very distant from God. Uh, and you start to ask yourself, do I actually believe this stuff? We just uh, sang this song. I believe in God the Father. I believe in the Trinity. I believe in the virgin birth. I believe in all this stuff. But life twists and turns and becomes very painful sometimes. And I, if you're like me, it causes you to say, whoa, is this legit? Um, you go to a funeral of somebody that you love deeply, and we're putting them in a hole in the dirt. Uh, you know, resurrection is staring you right in the face, and, and, you're, and you're asking, okay, that's fun to sing about, and it feels really good. Do I actually believe this is true? Uh, life does that to us, doesn't it? It causes us to wonder if this is legit. He's got the whole world in his hands. We'll sing that sometimes. Really? Really? Our our late church father, Anselm, St. Anselm, he had a great little quip. He said, we have a faith that seeks understanding. I think he's saying, "I, I trust in God, but I don't understand the way that he works all the time. We are seeking that together. It gets wild sometimes. I I wonder if I really believe this. Then it feels a little bit crazy sometimes. You start to ask other questions like, "How weird is this going to get?" As I develop more of a life with Jesus, you know, you start to feel a little bit unicorny or leprechauns. It's like this is starting to sound a little fantastical. Uh, we start to wonder if Jesus is going to come back on a unicorn. We start, if you're from Wisconsin, I'm from flyover country, Wisconsin. We think he's coming back with the Green Bay Packers cape on. <laughs> I believe that. We'll put we add that to the song. I believe it. It's true. Go Packers. Well, <laughs> it's not. It's not a choice. I just. I was born in Wisconsin. I have. It's in my blood. So. My point is that I think we, we will understand that God's word is truthful, but sometimes it looks like nonsense based on our reality. And this is a jailbreak story we're about to read. So it looks like, like a success story right up front. Uh, but I think there's, Luke is doing something else here. It's really good. So the bigger question then, I guess, that this launches to is, what do I do in those moments? How do I relate to a God I feel distant from? How do I relate to a God that I don't even know if I fully believe right now? What do I do in that moment? And if, I mean, I was raised when I was younger to just feel terrible shame. Huh, you're bad, you don't have fa- That did not help me much. So what, is a, what do we do when we're starting to feel as though God is distant? The way that we expected the Christian life to work out isn't coming to pass. Think about where Peter's at in this story. We'll get to it in a second. The one thing I want to say before we get there, um, you've traced a theme through the first 11 chapters of Acts, and that is, it is this theme of we being in Christ are joining His mission and are therefore a body sent, sent into the world. That's very different than a self-protecting social club. That's a whole different mindset. That's the incurvature of the soul. How can I get mine for me? And the, the whole sense of acts is that you've been chosen by God, brought into his family for a purpose, and that's to be sent ones in the world. So Peter and company have been sent. They get that. They're on an adventure. They know Jesus is legit, so they're following him. But boy, things are are intense. Now, I don't know that they were expecting a whole lot else. They watched Jesus go down pretty hard, yeah? They watched him raise too, though. So I want to go to Acts 12, um, and, and we have this, Luke is going to talk about this dark lord, Herod, you know, who's sending out his dementors and his stormtroopers, and he's, you know, that's what he's doing. He wants to take out the Christians, he wants especially to take out their leaders, and this is this is something that's going to play out. We have to we have to look at the way Luke will juxtapose Herod and Peter. I think Peter's our main guy. I like Peter. I relate to Peter because he's dumb. <laughs> he misses the point all the time. You know, he's fumbling and making says the dumbest things at the wrong time. But that dude totally loves Jesus. You know, you see that through his whole life. So I relate to Peter pretty well. Um, Okay, so we have Peter, we have Herod, Acts 12, verse 1. Here we go. About that time, that, you wrapped it up, at the, there's a famine going on at the end of chapter 11. So about the time of this famine, Herod the king, says Luke, laid violent hands on some who belonged uh, to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. That's, you know, if you're a first century person, that's a big deal. That's a political killing. You don't kill them with a sword unless they're a threat to the empire, you see. So he kills them with a sword, and then uh, when he saw that this pleased the Jewish folks, he proceeded to arrest Peter also and won him some favor. This was during the days of unleavened bread, so the Passover. So this year, that's going to start at sundown on April 19th and go to sundown on April 27th, the Passover week. That's when this is happening. Verse 4, and when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads, four, four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer was made for him to God by the church. Pause, take note on that. Luke wants us to see a group of people gathered for prayer. Just go another step. These people clearly trust God. They've got a, they're have in a pickle. Their buddy is locked up, probably very unjustly. All right? And they want to not, what are they doing? What's their response? Well, they want to be a faithful presence and they go to prayer. They obviously believe God has some kind of power to help here. Uh, you might say they, they are understanding of the fact that God is a God who makes a way when it seems like there is no way. They've been conditioned by the story of the scriptures and now Jesus to understand that this is, this is not small peanuts kind of God worship. This is the God for real. So I think Luke wants us to see that these guys believe in God, they're praying to him. That's a big deal. The other thing is he calls Herod a king, but Herod's not a king. What gives? What's up with that? This is Roman domination. It's an empire. Herod has got some power. I think Herod liked to believe that he was a king. Right. He liked having power. He wanted it. And his whole family is well known for being lust, lustful for power. And no matter what they had, they wanted more control, more power. There's a whole lineage you can study of the Herods. They're nuts. Uh, Josephus is the ancient historian he says the there was a quip back in the day they said it's better to be one of Herod's pigs than his own sons this is a different Herod but that Herod killed his wives and killed his own kids because he felt threatened by them so it's, it's a you know you don't go to this family reunion you just don't do it they're mean people okay so He's a king, but not really. He just, I think he wants to be. And so Luke calls him a king. It's King Herod. And maybe Luke is sort of winking at you as he says that. Pause for a second. I love to look at Herod and say, <laughs> what an idiot. But then I kind of say, "Huh. I guess I kind of like having full control over everything too. In fact, if I'm going to be honest and look back at some of the ways that I make decisions in this world, a lot of it is motivated out of a desire to control my kids, control other people, control my... I mean, when I watch the news that night, I get super mad. Why? Because I want to control the world in a different way. I don't know that any of us is too far removed from the desire to be in complete control and to have lots of power. I would suggest power and money are probably the greatest American gods. In our, in our society. So, here we are. Herod's there. Peter's here. God is sending his good news into the world. But Herod says, nope, I'm not going to allow it. And he's the king. Now look at that last verse. The last clause of verse 3, sorry. The last clause of verse 3, it says that this was during the days of unleavened bread. Again, I think Luke is kind of winking and nodding. You get it? You see what's happening here? It's Peter. Peter's very Jewish, isn't he? (laughs) What is the Passover for a Jewish kid? For a Jewish mom or dad or grandma or grandpa? For anybody who's Jewish, what's the Passover? It's the celebration of God's powerful salvation. (laughs) You know, it is the the identity-forming festival that God commanded from Exodus 12 and and into the eons, don't ever stop doing this Passover festival. Why? So that you will always remember that I am the God of power who rescued you from the dark overlord Pharaoh. I have that kind of strength. And Peter is going to celebrate this massive celebration of salvation locked up with iron shackles in a Roman prison. Well, it's quite a place to celebrate the freeing God. That's quite a place to celebrate the God of all salvation. All right? You've got to feel that. That's a big deal. He's the saved, believing Christian who's committed his entire life to Jesus. And he's going to celebrate Passover as a prisoner. I suppose that he was not feeling that great. I suspect that he had something in his heart and soul that might be reminiscent of what we see even in the Savior. Where he he maybe felt something like, why have you forsaken me here? What is Peter doing? He's on mission. He's with Jesus. He's sharing the gospel. This isn't supposed to happen, right? Life took quite a turn for him. Let's go to verse 6. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers. He was bound with two chains, and the sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, I love this line, and behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. Sounds a little Christmassy, doesn't it? An angel of the Lord came, and the light shone all around them. Well, here's the jail cell. It's all lit up. And he struck Peter on the side, you know, peter wake up peter got woke and he said get up quickly he says this is biblical woke that's different that's totally different get up quickly he says and the chains fell off his hands and the angel said to him put your pants on and put your sandals on he says dress yourself put on your sandals and so peter did and he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. Look at the bookend. Get up, follow me. First words out of Jesus' mouth to Peter, weren't they? I don't know if they were the first word. They were in the first paragraph probably. But that's how Jesus calls people. Get up from where you're at in Hillsboro. Get up from the place you've been living in Tigard or Beaverton or Portland East. Get up from the routines of your normal life and come after me. Don't try to fit me into your scheme. Get up out of your scheme and come into my life, says Jesus. Here the angel is echoing that same language. It's beautiful. Get up, follow me. And then all that other language, again, if we were Jewish, we'd be like, that's Passover instructions. Get up in the middle of the night, gird your loins, wrap your cloak around you, be ready to go. These are all the instructions for the Passover. It's very interesting. What is you know you link that up if you're you know, people do this all the time when I'm listening to a good Bible teachers like see this links with that and I'm like cool it links whatever <laughs> so what <laughs> you figured out links I could do that on the internet you say you say uh, why does that matter and I think it matters because um, he's using these Passover echoes it's during the Passover he wants us to say. Or I think to conclude, this is not just... It is a historical account of what happened, but it's not just that. It's a story, and it has a deeper meaning than just here's the what and the where and the how of Peter's jailbreak. He's connecting all of these things to help us see perhaps a little microcosmic picture of a very big salvation. So he's tying it to salvation... And then we might make a mistake here, and I want to really be careful, because we can't be too blanket with the word salvation in contemporary America. If we, juxt- if, we, if we invest our understanding of salvation, just kind of preconceived notion, into a biblical understanding of salvation, we'll start to think something like this. Salvation leads to good feelings, total clarity of beliefs, and a more comfortable, stable, and secure way of life. Unfortunately, I've actually heard the gospel sold that way. That's just false. <laughs> I mean, just look at Jesus's life. <laughs> he lived perfectly in step with the Father, and it didn't lead to a more comfortable life for him. He's like, even the foxes have a house. I don't even have a pillow, you know. He he doesn't lead to comfort, security, or he doesn't even really live past 33, you know. He gets hammered pretty hard in this world, and he says, you will take up not lacy pillows, but a cross. So there's something that we miss if we think salvation is going to lead to our best life now. It does, I think. That's actually true. But we have to let the Bible define what life is. And it's different than just, everything is clear for me and I feel wonderful perpetually. Okay, so let's read on. Verse 9. Now Peter, he went out and he followed him, the angel... And Peter did not know what was being done. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real. But he thought he was seeing a vision. This is Luke saying that he was confused and really disoriented. I don't want to get too allegorical in my Bible interpretations, but there's times where it's warranted, and I think this is one of them. It's a story... And he's talking about this great moment of salvation. And usually I think of God saves me when I work hard enough or God saves me when I believe strong enough or God saves me when I finally get it and I make a choice for him or something like that. This is this picture of God totally breaking into Peter's life and saving him. And Peter, at first glance, when Peter looks at this, he's just like, "Mm -hmm, what is going on? He's totally upside down. He does he's in this kind of a stupor. I don't know if you feel that way about salvation, but I do. I've had moments where I feel like I'm really tracking with Jesus. I, I understand him, I believe he's with me. And then I've had plenty of moments where I don't know it's like something is happening to me, but I don't know how it's working, and I don't know what's going on. I think this is what's happening in this short little moment. Like he's fumbling about, wondering if it's all just a dream. Luke doesn't say Peter trusted and believed that God would save him, and then God did. It just says Peter was sleeping. <laughs> and the angel said, Put your pants on, we're going, you know. That's basically it. And he says, I don't know what's going on. So verse 10. They passed the first and the second guard, and they come to the iron gate leading into the city. And it opened for them. <laughs> you can hear it creaking open, you know. It just opened up for them. On its own accord, and they went out, and they went along one street, and then poof! Immediately, the angel leaves them. (laughs) Thanks, you know, I'm on the mean streets of dark urban Jerusalem as an outlaw, and now I'm on my own. You know. We might get stuck in, oh, he's free, yeah, he's free, but now he's been abandoned. You can do some reading in uh, the, the folks who know, like, first century literature really well, and you'll find that this kind of narrative is common outside of the Bible and in all kinds of different spots. It's somebody who's wanting to sort of prop up a hero. So there'll be a jailbreak narrative. It's common. But it is not common. In fact, I don't know if you can find it anywhere, were the divine force that breaks the captive free. So a group of gods or the, you know, one of the Roman gods or whatever. That god stays with the person who's broken out to the end to glorify them. <laughs> it doesn't abandon. So this is unique. If we were well trained in first century lit, we'd be like, "Oh wow, that's weird that the angel just leaves Peter on his own." I think, I think that gives us a cue that Luke is not writing a puffery story. He's not making this up. We would be much more likely to see him showing that divine angel staying with Peter and raising him up to glory. Instead, the angel kind of swoops in mysteriously, gets Peter clothed and confused, takes him out into the streets, and then disappears. All right, so there's Peter. He's all alone. That's crazy. I bet he's freaking out. I think Peter knows better at this point than to expect that God is going to fill his or his disciples' lives with a bunch of comfort and security. Don't get me wrong, God is interested in your comfort. He's the God of all comfort. But we have to be really careful about not over-realizing what we believe the end will be like. We live in a now and not yet. We live as kingdom people now, but the full, we might say tearless benefits of life in the kingdom have not yet come. We live on the promise that God will wipe away every tear. But there's still tears to shed in this world. I don't think I need to do a lot of convincing for anybody in this room to know that that's true. So here's Peter in the streets all alone. When Peter came to himself, now he's kind of coming out of a stupor, he says, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. And they were expecting him to die. Notice things aren't awesome for him right now, but he is free. It is for freedom that we were set free. I think sometimes we underestimate freedom. We look for comfort when we were built for freedom. Freedom. The story's turning here. Remember how it began. Herod is sort of, even though we like to point fingers at him for being stupid, we still look at him and say, huh, I kind of like the same stuff you like, which is control and power. He's juxtaposed to Peter, who we don't really want to be like Peter, who's kind of (laughs) weak, socially rejected, not getting too far in terms of the world's values. But it starts to turn here. We continue. Here's where it gets funny. This is a funny scene right here. Uh, New Testament author, uh, uh, scholar N.T. Wright he says one of the sure touches of a master writer is knowing how to create a seriously funny scene in the middle of an extremely serious one. So the extreme severity is that Peter's on the run. Basically, he needs to get out of Jerusalem as fast as he possibly can. Is is the gist of it. Here we go. Verse twelve. When he realized this, so that he wasn't actually in a stupor and that God had rescued him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, so John Mark, where many were gathered together and they were praying. We're kind of back to that moment. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came out to answer. She recognizes Peter's voice, and in her joy... She did not open the gate, but she ran back in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. (laughs) So Peter's like, "Uh," she's like, oh my gosh, it's you, Peter, I'm going to go. And she leaves him there, and the gate's locked, and you could totally see him sitting there like, uh, Rhoda, open the freaking door here, you know. I guarantee he's just like, what is happening? She's all stoked, so she goes in. And she says, hey, everything we've been praying for is happening. They're like, "Uh -uh." uh-uh, here we go. So they knocked, and she goes, uh, recognizing she runs back in and tells them, in verse 15, they said to her, so she tells them, Peter's at the gate. And they said to her, girl, you crack cray Girl, that is not true. You are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it's an angel. It can't be Peter. It's a spirit animal. It's not Peter. It's something else. They just literally wouldn't believe it. Isn't that funny? The Christians who believe in God, who are faithfully present to pray for their friend Peter, believing God can make a way when there's no way forward, has made the way forward, here's the proof in the flesh. they're like, "Mm, no, that's... Uh, Sit down, Rhoda. But Peter's out there. Peter kept knocking, you know. Guys, let me in. And when they opened, they saw him and they were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand, he said, "Shh, shut up, be quiet." And he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison. I bet they were just—that would be fun, wouldn't it? You ask Peter that when we get to heaven. Peter, tell me about that prison break. It sounded wild. And he described to them how the Lord brought him out of prison. And he said. Tell these things to James and to the brothers, and then he departed and went to another place. (laughs) See you later, Peter. I think it's a surprising picture of this church's response, and it's a grace to us that is a gift. God gives you and me a gift in this moment of the story. Because when I read Acts or the New Testament, I just I put all of these Christians up on this pedestal, like gosh, they were so much more faithful, they were so much more willing to just throw it all down to Jesus. They God, they under. I just think of them. I think of myself in this deprecating way, and I think of them, and I think Luke is saying to us, yeah, they're just like you. At one moment, they are faithful and present to God and submitting their lives to Him and praying to Him like they ought to be doing, and at at just the next moment, they don't even believe that God is doing what he's doing right before their eyes. Don't we fluctuate like that? We come up and down. There are, there are weeks, maybe for you, there are long periods of time of just, I really believe in him, I really do. And then there are times of wilderness wandering. And in both of those, God loves you. And never leaves. And in your... Uh, Your fortitude, like your will to believe, your strength of faith does not seem to be what God bases his love for you upon. So in those moments where you're like, I don't think I have really super strong faith. I don't even know if I believe this stuff. Remember Peter. Remember Peter. Remember how God saves him in spite of that. Remember this group of Christians who on one moment they're faithful and trusted and the next moment they don't believe at all. It's cool, isn't it? The story's great. Okay. Luke is saying, these people are no better than you. A faithful, trusting community, depending on God one day, shifting into doubt the next, we're all in that boat together. There's a great line from a bluegrass band I love, Old Crow Medicine Show. They sing this song and they say, We're all in this thing together, walking the line between faith and fear. This life doesn't last forever, but when you cry, I taste the salt in your tear. There's this sense of we suffer together with the Savior. Salvation is about freedom, not about being guaranteed we'll never get unjustly treated. Peter's unjustly treated here, isn't he? All right, verse 18. Now, when day came... There was no little disturbance among the soldiers, meaning there was a huge disturbance. Uh, and after Herod searched for him, and he did not find him, he examined the sentries, and he ordered that they should all be put to death. <laughs> Dang, that's a rough job. And it was very common. I don't think Luke even emphasizes this point. It's if you're in charge of guarding the prisoners and they get out, that's the, you're donezo, that's the end of your life. So he went down. Herod has him killed, and then he goes down from Judea to Caesarea Maritima. That'll be the Caesarea on the Mediterranean coast. Uh, Herod the Great previously had built that up. Very, very beautiful structures and all that. I think he went down to the beach to chill. Probably drink some ouzo, you know, and that's what he was doing. So you'd think this would calm him down a bit, but it doesn't. His bloodlust rages on. He's like the Pharaoh. He just won't let up. Dark masters are like that, aren't they? They don't let up. I've had dark masters in my life for a long, long time, and they are relentless. I'm talking about internal masters. Masters that drive me towards substance, that drive me toward experience. Masters that control me. And Pharaoh is like that. Pharaoh's like that. Herod is like that. It's just this sort of archetype in the Bible. So... Here he is, he's relentless, he likes to enslave, he wants to be in control. But the clearer picture is emerging, isn't it? Who's the true slave? Who's the one who's truly locked up? It's not Herod, it's, or it is, sorry, (laughs) I just blew that. It's (laughs) it's, (laughs) It's totally Herod, and it's not Peter at all. Here's the final scene, verse 20. Now Herod was angry. Of course he is. He has everything he wants. Yes? Isn't that interesting? Don't you just instinctively feel that? Things would be better if I had everything I want. It's just so innate. Herod has everything he wants, and what? He's mad. He's angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. Uh, Luke doesn't tell us why he's mad at them. He's just mad. And they came to him with one accord these people Having persuaded Blastus That's a great name by the way <laughs> Blastus The king's chamberlain And he asked for peace They asked for peace Because their country depended on the king's country for food So this is during the famine So these guys are hungry And they come down and they say Help us, help us This is so good on an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes. Now, oh, Josephus, that historian, he talks about this moment. He suggests there was gold woven right into his fibers, and that Herod actually, with the sun hitting him right, looked like he was glowing. Josephus talks about him as this, yet yeah, like a demigod. You know, he gets up there, the sun's on him, he's glowing golden. You know, he's the golden child here, and everybody's shouting, "Yay! The voice of a god!" He's not even a man. You're so great. Give us some food. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and breathes his last. That's rough. Dang. You know, that's great storytelling, isn't it? I think it's true. But it's just here's this powerful Lord, the dark Lord. He's got all the control, the money, everything that he wants. The people are respecting him as their authority broker. You know, he's the guy. He can save us. And he dies almost immediately. It's so thematic throughout the whole Bible. If you have just started opening a Bible and reading it, I encourage you, read it thoroughly through many times. You'll start to see these themes emerging, and you cannot escape the thematic huge power that gets overturned in the weak one, is shown to be the true power. That is just kingdom. uh, That is just a kingdom mindset. It's through the whole Bible. That's the story of Pharaoh, isn't it? Pharaoh, so powerful, the ruler of the world, flipped upside down by a little baby he originally intended to kill. That's amazing. Isn't that the story of Jesus? Freedom. Verse 24 gives us the powerhouse finale. But the word of God increased and multiplied. So, Herod has tried to stop that. Herod doesn't want that to happen. He wants his control. Herod's getting eaten by worms. And the word, the logos of God, carries on. It's unstoppable. It's the exact opposite of what the strong man wanted. He wanted to be in control and try to thwart what God was doing. And he was totally unable. Jesus, his gospel of truth, the word, continues to multiply. That's creation language, isn't it? Don't you hear the echoes of Genesis there? Be fruitful and multiply. That's the way of God. Life upon life upon life. Freedom and goodness. This is what he's about. The new creation is forming in this world because of Jesus who sends you and I into the world to live for him. In every place we walk and breathe, from Genesis to the great Exodus story we've talked about a few times, we're fruitful and multiplying that word of God. That's a huge deal. It's a creative and it's a loving word. I think of the song we sing, what powers of hell, what scheme of man could ever pluck us from his hand? It's in the power of Christ that I stand. The power of the logos, the word, multiplying, going forth. But the word of God increased and multiplied. The thing that the front end of our story said Herod wanted to stop doesn't stop. When life takes a turn for the worst, and the truthful message of the good news from God feels like nonsense, or it even sounds like nonsense, I want to trust God's word. That's that face that seeks understanding. I can see throughout the entire Bible this exact same kind of theme. I think Peter gives us an answer to the question, how can I relate to a God who feels distant or a God that I'm having trouble believing right now? First and foremost, we can remember the life of Jesus. And that's that's why we will come to this table when I'm done talking here, which will be real quick. But we're going to come to the table and remember the life of Jesus We remember his love and his sacrifice, but remember the way he was treated. The man who lived perfectly, who believed God was present with him from beginning to end. We can even feel like he felt, which is feeling like we're forsaken. If you feel forsaken, don't shame yourself for that. (laughs) Recognize you might be living right within the life of Christ himself, who felt the same way. And what did Christ do in that moment, if not cry out to God? So, when we're feeling lost or distant, we remember Jesus and we're comforted by knowing we're walking the same path as him. That could actually spur you to cry out to God like he does as well. And you can remember the Word of God throughout history, which tells this same story over and again. Those who chase power and control chase a comfortable emptiness. You want to be in full control over your children full control over your fellow employees or your bosses or your direct reports. You want to have full control over the way people live in the neighborhood or in the country. I want to be in control. Let's just say, heaven forbid, you achieve that control and find a comfortable emptiness. That is very, very different than those who follow Jesus and accept his invitation into freedom to walk an uncomfortable path to renewal and eternal life in God's kingdom. It's an uncomfortable path. It is. I'm almost positive that Luke had echoes of Isaiah in his mind when he wrote this. Here's Isaiah 47 and 8. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. And Isaiah 40, if you read the whole chapter, is all about the inversion of the power brokers in this world. The great nations of power will be shut down as God humbly raises up those who are with him. It's just that our eyes and our hearts and our ears, we've been so... I mean, you're going to drive out from here and pass by... Billboards and see things on your phone already within the next five minutes of leaving here that are all going to be reminding you and teaching you that, that this is what the good life is. And Jesus doesn't say that to us. We all want to be on the throne of Herod's power, not in the humiliation of Peter's jail cell. At the end, Luke has this crazy irony emerge through the people of Tyre and Sidon, doesn't he? It's a crazy irony. If you give us safety and comfort, we'll worship you as God. We'll happily call you a God. And then their God withers and fades and dies of a bad case of the worms. (laughs) You know, there's no fruitfulness. There's no multiplying, just selfishness and corruption unto death. That's the way of that path. God is bringing new life into this entire world and he's doing it through you and me. And other average men and women and children. He's not favoring the sexiest or the strongest or the most influential. And he's allowing us to experience the full brunt of this world's brutality. The New Testament is not a story about Jesus' followers rising to high levels of social acceptability and influence, is it? That's just not what the story's about. But it does tell a story about God's followers being set free. Still confused? Yes. Still wondering how God is leading? Yes. Sometimes feeling like we're in a stupor upside down and I don't even know what God's angels are doing to me? Yes. Still in pain? Yes. But totally free and pursuing a life of freedom in God, the God who promises to wipe away every tear. That's a great invitation for you and me to live with that kind of God. We can relate to God even when we find him hard to believe by not giving up. Peter never gave up. He watched his whole life and he is up and down and all over the map, but he never gives up. He knew that the word of God would be fruitful, that it would multiply. Remember when Jesus challenges him and he's like, where are you going to go? He's like, I would go somewhere, but I can't go anywhere. You alone have the words of eternal life. He knew that this would be fruitful and multiply to the entire world and he allowed the pain and the suffering and the real confusion of life to drive him closer to Jesus, not further from him. That's my prayer for you today. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for it's even crazy to say this. Thank you for trusting us to carry on your work. And even as soon as I say thank you for that great honor, we know that it comes with an attendant suffering. And yet your suffering refines us. It makes us more whole and it brings us into greater freedom. So on, on, I just ask that through your spirit... You would strengthen every man and woman and child in this room to persevere with you no matter what. When we find ourselves unjustly treated, when we find ourselves suffering, and when what we imagine life to become does not come to pass, I pray that you would hold us strong and that you would help us to continue on in this faith as we seek understanding. Thanks for loving us. We love you and we trust you with our very lives. Amen.